This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at beyondzeroemissions.org. Tonight's show about community climate action takes us to Paris where we will talk to Tom Mitchell. He's a new Matilda journalist. We'll also hear from Professor Tim Flannery and the president of Kiribati, Anate Tom. But to start, here is a taste of the People's March for Climate. We started at Wesley Church where they were conducting a ceremony to bury coal. A rabbi, a Muslim leader and a uniting church minister ushered in the new era and a choir who looked like Victorian undertakers sang a beautiful song about how we must remain undivided. And now I say to you, friends, Melburnians, country people, lend me your ears. We have come to say goodbye to the old ways and to welcome the new. We have come to say farewell to coal. The time has come, my friends, to let it rest in peace. So I'm going to blow the traditional shofar, the ram's horn, which is used to make major announcements and attract people together. So welcome to this time of thanksgiving and farewell, friends, where we acknowledge that to everything there is a season. There is a time for mining at a time for solar panels. There is a time for digging deep and a time for land to rest. There is a time for fossil fuels to be used and a time for embracing a new dawn. Let us spend a moment in silence to give thanks for all that coal has given us in the... Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I am Sheikh Mohammed Güler. Now I say to you, let us now say farewell to call and the old ways of doing things, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. We farewell its damage to the earth, 
we farewell Stemich to our Pacific neighbors. We farewell its damage to human health. In the cycle of life and death, the earth is replenished and life is eternally renewed. Into the deep dark earth from whence it came, we will let all go. At the State Library, tens of thousands of people had massed behind banners. I couldn't cover them all. I could hardly move. But I did see the nurses, the firefighters, the electrical trades union, the social workers Greenpeace, the Australian Conservation Association, social workers, uh, the Greens, the ALP, divestment groups, solar citizens and beyond zero emissions. I could hardly move and the background noise was huge, but I've tried to bring you a taste of the diversity of people demanding unified climate action. I usually ask them before I turned on the recorder, would it be okay to speak? And some of them just were quite shy, but then they gave a really beautiful little one-minute idea of why they were there. After that, those Vox Pops, I went up close to the stage. We heard the Welcome to Country from an Aboriginal elder who reminded us that if we look after Mother Earth, she will look after us. Then we heard a cardinal from Honduras who said, We received a garden. We cannot deliver a desert. This was followed by ACF speakers Victoria McKenzie and CEO Jeff Cousins, plus a union leader who roused our will to fight. After that, 60,000 people marched up Burke Street to Parliament. I hope this takes you there. Okay, I've got someone here whose T-shirt says, Ask me about Fossil Free. Tell us all about it. Okay, so my name's Michael and I work with Future Super and uh, we're Australia's first fossil fuel-free superannuation fund. So the reason why we are fossil fuel-free is because Australians have over $2 trillion in superannuation and a vast majority of that is with super funds that are heavily invested in coal, oil and gas or other industries that are exposed to fossil fuels. Are they taking a risk if they take their superannuation out of its safe little golden nest egg? Well, we argue that um, there's actually really strong evidence that fossil fuels present risk to a portfolio. Um, many very conservative um, and established financial institutions are warning about stranded asset risk. Uh, so we screen out fossil fuels. Now, we're investing with superannuation over the long term for people's retirement. So if we think about what the world's going to look like in 20, 30 years' time, um, it's an interesting question to, to think about how much fossil fuels will be a part of that and whether we should be part of um, uh, moving towards a cleaner future now. Would you tell me what your poster says and why you're here? Sure. Um, my poster says the biggest threat to climate to our planet is animal culture, uh, animal agriculture. It's the leading cause of basically every, every, single, every single problem. It's also a social justice issue. Um, I'm an environmental anthropologist and I know absolutely unequivocally Animal agriculture is the worst thing for our planet and it's the one thing that gets marginalised. We want to bring it back into, this, into central discussions so we can address it, so we can change human behaviour and so we can change this planet. We've only got one and it needs all of us to change and all of us individually can bring the change. A lot of people say we should get the human population down, but I think it's more the livestock, really, that outnumbers them. Absolutely. I think we have to... At the moment, we're breeding animals to kill them. It's outrageous. It's an industry of slaughter, and it's killing us as well as them. 
So, there, and there's no need for it. It's perfectly natural and normal to live healthily on a vegan diet. Um, people flourish on a vegan diet. Their heart flourishes, their minds flourish. Thank you. It's a big problem for everybody. And they've had time to, they've had so much time to uh, make changes and, or at least to demonstrate that they're committed to some kind of change. And they're just not, um, I think everyone's aware of that. So, um, I guess the point of the banner is to say that, uh, like regular people like you and me, um, we 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 need to forget the idea that the people above us, the people who are above us, are going to solve the problem, and we need to start solving the problems ourselves. And so that's building communities and um, building communities that are strong and able to um, present alternatives to defend themselves um, and dismantle capitalism because um, climate change and most, uh, most environmental problems are caused by capitalism and capitalism is our enemy in this circumstance and many other circumstances in my opinion. Thank you very much for your comment. What are you hoping for from this mega rally? Well, I guess more than anything to raise awareness about how the issues are linked, particularly between the forced closure of Aboriginal communities and climate change and climate justice in this country. What is the link? I guess the biggest thing at the moment with, with representation from WA is to say that with the, the uh, mining industry's extraction of particularly iron ore in WA, that closing down communities to access these resources means pushing Aboriginal people off their lands, which is not okay. Okay, I'm sure we're all with you on that. Thank you. Elders past and present, elders present here today, and elders of different nations that are here today. I'd like to acknowledge my community and everybody that is here today, and I pay my respects to your ancestors, elders, and families. I'm very proud and honoured to be here. This is part of the traditional country of my grandmother and mother and ancestors, and I feel very honoured to be with all of you standing on our sacred ground. I think it's important that we remember about where we are. It's important that we remember to respect each other today because we're all got all excited and trying to get your point of view across and we all have to worry about our climate and you know we call the earth our mother and I've seen so many things in my life that have changed that have brought me to tears. And I wonder what our future's going to be like. Yet the struggle continues. Many of us are here today because we know that climate change is the greatest threat to humanity. But core to this crisis is the loss of Indigenous land, cultures and livelihoods. And in order to build just solutions, we need to see that the fight to stop the forced closure of Indigenous communities goes hand in hand with solving climate change. I said at the last rally, and I'm going to say it again, as a symbol of solidarity, let's raise our hands in the air. First Nations leaders have been saying for centuries, as individual fingers, we can easily be broken, but together we make a mighty fist. So let's fight this fight together until we win. Thank you. Let's go down to Tasmania. You're with me in a raft on the Franklin River, and we're drifting through the Great Ravine, and it's quiet. If you look above you, You'll see a wet's tail eagle flying there, just watching us. If you look to the left, you'll see what looks like a great swathe of green carpet coming down to the river. And that's moss. 
beautiful moss drifting down to the quiet river. If you look up on the other side, you'll see the 4,000-year-old Huon Pine standing there. And then suddenly it's not quiet. You can hear a noise, and you know one of the big rapids is coming up, and the raft's going to drop, and your stomach's boiling like the water in the rapid, and bang, suddenly you're through it, and you're still alive, and you're happy. Believe me, you're really happy. Now, how can you still do that? Why can you still go down one of the last great wild rivers in the world? Because the politicians saved it? Because the politicians stood up for it? No, because all of us stood up for it. All of us stood up. What about Kakadu? Would that have been there? Would that have been there? Did the politicians start off that? And what about the Great Barrier Reef National Park? There'd be oil rigs on the Great Barrier Reef today if we left it to the politicians. So we don't leave it to the politicians. We leave it to the people. And every time we do that, what do they throw back to us? What they throw back is they say, but what about the economy? What about the economy? As if the economy is something that they look after and we're not part of. And the economy is not part of nature and the environment. The economy is us. I've been a businessman most of my life. The economy is just the sum total of our work, our effort, our capital, our saving. That's what it is. And an integral part of all of that is nature and the life it supports. So we have a Prime Minister now who's using some very good words. Words like agility and innovation. They're good words. But if you want innovation, what are you doing sticking with an old dying industry like coal? How is that innovative? Innovation is new technology. And I know a little bit about that. I was in that industry. Innovation is reaching out to the new clean energy sources that are coming at an incredibly rapid rate. Not hanging on to a dying industry that belongs a couple of centuries ago. We've got to stop digging up the fossil fuels. We've got to stop things like the Adani coal mine. Now, is that enough on its own? just to make that big switch in the energy source. No, of course it isn't. Of course it isn't. There are many other things we might have to do. We might have to drive different sorts of cars. We might have to eat different sorts of foods. We might have to travel in a different way. But I tell you what, to make that shift in energy is a pretty darn good place to start. We are here because we are ready. We are ready to march in order to give a sign that we are concerned about these calls. I had the privilege of being speaker in the Climate Change Summit in Copenhagen 2010 that was a total failure. Then I was in Durban as well for the same cause and we arrived nowhere. This time is the most decisive summit that will take place in Paris and cannot be a failure anymore. It's necessary to arrive to commitments, especially the big countries, and Australia is a big country. So we need to be present there, and not only with words, but with deeds. So I thank you for participating in this march, which is very important. I can tell you that Pope Francis yesterday in Kenya was delivering a speech to the, in the office 
of the of the United Nations and talking about this. Maybe you know the significant letter Laudato Si, which is very important. It's not only a matter of thinking of today, it's a matter of thinking in the future. Thinking what are we going to inherit to the next generation. We received a garden, we cannot deliver a desert. So we're fighting for safer workplaces. We're fighting against what we're seeing in you know, new flexible conditions. And we're also in this big fight for climate justice. We're with you. But what we hear is there are a number of people, a number of communities that have a lot of fear around climate change. And it's a real fear. Um, so we need to be really smart and sophisticated about how we do it because we don't want to leave anyone behind. And I'm thinking about communities like our friends in Latrobe Valley. We don't want to leave them behind and that's why we need to be smart and sophisticated and, and think about how we make these changes because there is great opportunity here. Great opportunity. When we embrace renewables, when we embrace public transport, when we embrace all these new innovations, that leads to thousands and thousands of jobs. So let me ask you, do you think this one rally is going to be enough to fix climate change? Do you think our politicians are doing enough to fix climate change? Do you think the Paris Force will be enough to fix climate change? That's right, we've got more work to do. So what do we want? Climate justice. When do you want it? Now. What do you want? Climate justice. When do you want it? Now. What do you want? Climate justice. When do you want it? Now. How are you going to get it? Fight for it. How are you going to get it? Fight for it. How are you going to get it? Fight for it. We're up for that fight too. Let's get out really on. Oh, yes, and if you were there Friday night in Melbourne, uh, you, you would appreciate that it takes a unionist to get the rally going. Uh, that was Viv sampling a few of the participants and a few of the speakers at the uh, People's Climate March in um Melbourne on Friday night. There's been a rash of rallies around Australia and the world in uh, support of COP21, which, as you probably know, is occurring in Paris as we speak. Uh, next up, Vivian's bringing us an interview with Tom Mitchell, a journalist who has appeared a few times on the show, and he's coming to us from Paris. Coming up next after this promo. <laughs> Words out. Freedom of species has hit the airwaves. Tune in for debates and updates on both local and international animal protection news and events. And learn about how you can live a cruelty-free, sustainable lifestyle. News, views and non-leather shoes. That's Freedom of Species, 1pm Sundays on 3CR. Authorised by the last few remaining kangaroos, Canberra. Good evening, listeners. Tonight, we've, I've just been to a most exciting rally in Melbourne. Thousands, maybe 60,000 people surging up Burke Street. And, and now we're crossing to Paris, where I have a new Matilda journalist, Tom Mitchell, with us. Now, Tom's very interested in industrial matters and climate change, and he's been trying to suss out the ambience there before the 
major COP21 conference starts. So, welcome, Tom. Tell us your first impressions of Paris. Good morning. Well, good morning for me. Good uh, good evening to you. Uh, listen, I mean, the sort of overbearing feeling in Paris is around the recent terror attacks, and that you know it is it is quite shocking. You see huge amounts of security and things on the street, and um, of course, part of that is connected to the upcoming climate talks. There's also I was at uh, the conference of the youth, which is sort of a, a shadow to the the broader conference, which is due to start on Monday. And I was there yesterday, and I spoke to the French Minister for Youth, uh, and also the uh, United Nations General Secretary, uh, Envoy to Youth. Mm. Uh, and both of them were speaking in, in very hopeful terms around what might come out of the Conference of the Parties, uh, which is what they, the UN lingo for the, the climate talks here. Um, very hopeful terms. I mean, the, the emphasis is very much on getting a legally binding treaty um, and, of course, keeping below that two-degree uh, average rise in global temperatures. There's a huge amount of questions connected to both of those things, uh, you know, as there always is. Yeah. Uh, legally binding on who and how. Will it be legally binding in the sense of the target itself or will it actually bind... Uh, individual nations to their commitments, and if so, which nations. So those are the sorts of questions that they'll be working through, you know, two weeks of intense negotiations. Uh, I've never been to a COP, but uh, I think it's going to be a real circus and a lot of people getting not a lot of sleep and... uh, not enough food from what oh, I've read. I know it sounds um, like the I'll Tower. Avoid that. It sounds like the Go Tower on. of Babel, and a lot of people are starting to hark back to the COP uh, in Copenhagen, and it was sort of roundly considered, in simple terms, a failure. Though lots of people said they could draw something out of it, but it can't. This one can't fail like that, or be seen to fail. And the French have set it up differently, haven't they? There's been a lot of lead-up meetings and lead-up people putting their targets on the table, and the. Heads of state will all be there on Monday. I saw the list of people out. Malcolm Bly Turnbull will be sitting in the Loire room with uh, the president of Kiribati and Rwanda and China. and All all these massive numbers of heads of state will be there uh, at the beginning. So can you tell us how the structure of it is possibly more likely to have a different outcome? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that you've hit on it there. That, That really is key. I mean... For a start, the fact that the leaders are appearing on the first day rather than towards the end is absolutely crucial because the scenes out of Copenhagen back in 2009 were these sort of frantic meetings where the leaders got in this room and there was like sort of this this standoff between China and the U.S. and China came out looking as though they had been the climate villains and got in the way of a deal. Uh, you know, there was a lot of dissatisfaction and the reality is that it, it was a failure and the leaders sort of pulled together something which was really a public relations strategy to make it seem that it wasn't a failure. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea of getting them in first, of course, is that the leaders can come in, grandstand on the first day and then the negotiators can get down to, to working within parameters set by them uh, at, towards the deal after the two weeks. Uh, the other thing as well, which I think you mentioned, is that the the various nations, 196 of them, have put forward what they call individually determined national contributions. Uh, so for Australia, that's our 26% target by 2030 based on 2005 levels. They've come in ahead of the talks, and so we have an idea of the sort of ballpark figure of where we're at. Uh, 
uh, whereas that was all worked out during the negotiations last time, uh, and that made things very difficult. I think the other thing uh, to mention uh, as well is that China and France, it is incredibly important how France frames success or failure because, it, of course, it's a political construct, whether it's successful or, or a failure. Mm. China and France issued a joint statement a few weeks ago, or maybe only two weeks ago, where they really emphasized the need for ratcheting up every five years. And so rather than building up towards a big tour, a big uh, outcome, yeah. Copenhagen, and, and that all fell down in a heap. And so there was a huge amount of disappointment. This time around, I think the focus is much more on settling down on a process which uh, means that we can continue to work away at things uh, and recognizes, uh, I think, you know, the NGOs have been using this, this phrase of the road through Paris. Yes. Uh, of course, it doesn't end at, at the COP. It didn't end at Copenhagen. And I think that a recognition of that is really pervading through these talks mm. uh, with the idea that this is an ongoing process and that we, we do need to keep below two degrees, but that, that's very unlikely to, to happen at this cost. Yeah. Well, at the rally today, there was one of the trade unionists at the end who called out these sort of key questions like... So let me ask you, do you think this one rally is going to be enough to fix climate change? Do you think our politicians are doing enough to fix climate change? Do you think the Paris Corps will be enough to fix climate change? That's right, we've got more work to do. We're lucky to have grassroots, you know, democracy where you can walk in the street and no one's going to shoot you. It's put into close focus by what you're experiencing there in Europe. Mm, absolutely. And it's true, you know, I think part of the whole equation for concerned citizens is that you really need to make climate action politically palatable is something important, is that we haven't had any real attempts at, at the sorts of cuts to carbon that we need to make. Uh, the reality is the emissions have gone up by 60% or something like that since these talks began in the 90s. Yeah. Uh, so we've, we've absolutely failed, and, and that's a key fact that needs to be in the front of everyone's mind when these sorts of things are going on is that yeah. we've made no progress. We, you know, the problem has become basically twice as bad. Yeah. Uh, but that's, you know, that's because there hasn't been a very significant effort. And the economic cost is not what, what certain political figures would tell you it is. Uh, but if it can be made to appear a vote winner, which I'm hoping from Labour's announcement uh, today in your time, I think. Yes, I'm still yes. sort of adjusting, but Labour's announcement today, you know, I'm hoping that that's what this will do. And, and I just read somewhere a second ago that the Herald has run a front page, uh, something along the lines of um, climate uh, climate election or something, something to that mm. effect. Mm. And I said a while ago that I hoped that's what Labour would do because you can make it politically palatable. And, of course, the messaging around the carbon tax and all of that uh, didn't, didn't work, work, work well at all. Yeah. Uh, but if you can communicate that message of the urgency and the fact that it can be done without huge costs, mm. uh, then I think we can make some progress. And, and, you know, leading into these talks, there's been a huge build-up in momentum, and, and I'm hopeful that, that we will make some progress this time around. Oh, I'm so hoping it. And I, I don't want to vilify the workers, and I, I know the CFMEU are really on side and doing a lot of thinking about this but like just today we had an, also a decision from the um, Public Assessment Commission saying that the Bulga 
mine, remember the Rio mm. Tinto mine is going to go ahead. It's got another, yet another planning permission. So, like, this is sort of terrible that, that these decisions are still being made. So we do need to make it very um, much a, an election issue that, you know, and the ALP, if they can position themselves with the miners getting a, a transition package, you know, reskilling and those regional towns that are dependent on carbon, like La Trobe Valley, you know, the, the, in Australia that the Labor Party squarely puts themselves on the side of the workers in those places rather than in the big owners like Rio Tinto who just send the profits overseas or sell the mine. Rio Tinto is apparently going to sell the mine anyways. I mean, I've done quite a bit of work around that mine near Bolga, the Mount Jolly Walkworth mine, and I mean, that is... Uh, an absolute travesty. The, one of the the issues I think that's worth noting around the CFMEU is, is that you know they accept that domestic coal-fired power stations will be phased out, and that it's in the interest of their members to have an orderly and well-funded plan uh, to do that. Uh, Tony Tony Ma, who's one of the senior figures at the CFMEU, actually seconded uh, Bill Shorten's motion at the recent uh, ALP national conference for a 50% renewable target by 2030. But, and this is one of the problems with Labor's uh, position, though, is that it's all aspirational, and we actually haven't got any policy detail, no. and we actually haven't got any firm commitments from Labor. But the CFMEU, I don't think, uh, accepts that the export market in Australia is, is on the wane in the way that you know, it, a lot of the economic analysis suggests yeah. it is. Again, though, this is sort of a, a question of, of timing and, and, uh, and gradually building towards an eventual long-term outcome. The Mount Foley-Walkworth extension should never have been approved, and there's actually some quite good sort of legal reasons why that should never have happened, and, mm. and the New South Wales government had to change the laws yes. in order for that to happen. Mm. So that does show the, you know, the disconnect between particularly what state governments that stand to benefit the most from these sorts of projects Mm. Uh, because they collect the royalties and so on. Mm. Uh, it does show the disconnect between the political discussion we're having and, I would argue, the, the economic reality that we're actually entering into. Political parties, again, it, you know, it needs to be made palatable for them. Yes. I know that the people of Bulgaria are planning to wage a, quite a serious um, nonviolent direct action campaign, and yeah. I think that Rio will have a bit of trouble uh, in, in executing their plan. Yeah. Uh, and, and fair enough, because, you know, that project is oh, uh, absolutely disgraced. Absolutely. Look, um, let's get back to Paris. A lot of the, a lot of the uh, outcomes of these talks really get thrashed out in, in backroom meetings mm. during the talks, and it's, it's really frantic. Yeah. Uh, so this time around, we do have a better idea of, of what we might expect. It's not enough. Uh, the UN has said that, at best, with the commitments countries have made, we can expect a 2.7 degree rise in temperatures. Mm, yeah. uh, and that's why I say that around this talk, there's a real focus on setting up a process that allows ongoing commitment. And one of the things developing nations want, for example, is for the developed nations to up their targets before 2020. Mm. Uh, but those are the sorts of things that will be worked out, and yeah. those are the sorts of tensions that inevitably... Uh, pervade these talks. Well, speaking of tension, if there hadn't been a state of emergency, I think there would be a lot more people flying in right now who are, you know, in all sorts of lobby groups uh, who've been doing climate action all over the world. But they may not be there because they can't protest on the street or have street theatre or actions like that. But what do you think, um, what tension needs to be kept up? Like I know, for example, in Australia, I think we need to keep up the 
the pressure to get rid of fossil fuel subsidies. That will be the easiest first step, get rid of the subsidies for the fossil fuels. But what pressure do you think um, civil society needs to keep up on their governments mm. over and above what they agree on in Paris? Because the 2.7 degree, I mean, it's probably locked in by now, but it's you've got to start thinking beyond that, back to zero, back to drawing down and much more radical action than they're likely to agree on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that I think has been seriously overlooked for far too long in these talks, and one of the things that allows big polluting countries like Australia off the hook, is that there's there's no focus in the UNFCCC process. There's no focus on the supply side. And so this call for a global moratorium on new coal mines, I think, is, is really critical. Yeah. And it's what our Pacific Island neighbours are asking for. And the logic behind that is that Australia can say, oh, we'll reduce our emissions by 26% based on 2005 levels by 2030, which, leaving aside how inadequate that is, the other thing that we do, of course, is that we export as much coal as we possibly can. Mm. And there was recently a deal spearheaded by Japan and the U.S., which phased out a certain type of government subsidy for new coal mines. Uh, Australia right. tried to block that, yes. and, and Malcolm Turnbull eventually um, folded under it and blocked it a little bit less mm. in the end. But the process through the U.N. doesn't take account of our responsibility for pushing those coal projects. And of course, if you create the supply... Uh, then that has flow-on effects to creating demand. But I think that that's one thing that civil society can really focus on to, to apply pressure, is that gaping hole that this, this UN process doesn't ca- take account yeah. of, of what you're doing to create a market for fossil fuels and to promote a market for fossil fuels. Yeah. And that's one area where Australia and other countries are able to just ignore their responsibility. And the reality is that we do have a moral responsibility for that, uh, but we're getting away with it scot-free as it stands. Yeah, so that's where we have to put the pressure. Well, look, thank you very much, Tom. After you, we're going to have a talk from the president of Kiribati, President Anate Tong, and he talks exactly about that Suva Declaration, No New Coal Mines. And he's very, Mm. very reasonable and very polite. It's not immediate, but, you know, um, just no new ones. like that uh, Mount Thorley work with. So um, thank you very much for talking to us from Paris. I know it'll be an exciting time. Don't lose your head and stay safe. So that was Tom Mitchell. Bye-bye. Tom Mitchell, a very good journalist from the New Matilda, and you can read his articles in New Matilda. It's an online journal. Thank you very much. Our next speaker is Professor Tim Flannery, who will be speaking to us about climate change and why we need to move beyond new coal mines. Adrian, thank you for your words and actions. They mean a lot to this country. Could I begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we're meeting to discuss this important issue this evening, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, their elders past and present. And I'd also like to recognise any Aboriginal people from any of the nations of this country who are joining us today. I'm Tim Flannery. I'm one of the members of the Climate Council and one of the 61 Australians who recently signed an open letter in support of a moratorium on new coal mines and coal mine expansions. And I signed that letter very conscious of our history in this country uh, and the many things that we've done that we shouldn't have done uh, and the consequences of that in terms of climate change. And I'd really like to begin this evening by 
apologising, at least from my heart, to President Tong and his people for some of the things that we've done in the past. I still remember uh, reading in 2001 uh, about an announcement made by the then head of the Australian Bureau of um, Agriculture and Resource Economics, who simply said at the climate meeting that it would be more cost-effective for the coral atoll nations to be sunk under a rising sea than it would be for Australia to change its, its climate policy or its energy mix. Um, I'd hate, I, I don't, I mean, that might sound like the distant past, but that same individual, Mr Brian Fisher, uh, this very year was advising our government on what Australia's renewable energy target should be in a formal capacity. Some things uh, don't change and they need to change very quickly. We know in this state of Victoria the cost of coal. You only need to go down to the Latrobe Valley through West Gippsland, have a look at the air quality down there and you can see, in fact you can taste in the air the consequences of current government policy. You can taste it in terms of the, the, the coal ash and the, the smell, the smoke in the atmosphere because those coal-fired those coal power plants in Victoria are running full bore now. While we had a price on carbon in this country, uh, we'd reduced coal burning down to about 69% of our energy mix, still far too high. Um, currently it's up near 77% of our energy mix once again and the hospitals of West Gippsland and indeed of Melbourne have people in them who are suffering, who are dying from lung and heart related diseases that are a consequence of that coal burning. Um, we also know the cost in this country of burning coal uh, just as our neighbours in the Pacific Islands understand all too well the cost of burning coal. And we know we have to stop. We know that the uh, um, Oxford University, uh, the Smith Institute has produced a very detailed new report saying that if we want to avoid two degrees of warming, uh, we need to retire in the next few years 300 very large coal-fired power plants globally, the oldest and most polluting coal-fired power plants uh, on our planet. It, it's unarguable what we need to do. The report is very, very clear and very thorough. The fact that we refuse to close those superannuated and dangerous plants in this country is hardly a good argument for places like India and South Africa that have a desperate need for energy uh, to close those plants that we know need to close if we're to avoid dangerous climate change. It's time that Australia stood up and took a lead in this and decided that our future was not coal, it's not in fossil fuels, it's in a very, very broad-based economy uh, which can be propelled forward by institutions like this university, the intellectual property that we need to uh, enter and succeed in the new energy economy is there for us to grasp, if only we will. The consequences of not acting are going to be severe. We are already uh, facing one and a half degrees Celsius of warming no matter what we do. So that's the gas that's already in the air will warm the planet by one and a half degrees. The experts who study the Great Barrier Reef tell us that the Great Barrier Reef will be dead at one and a half degrees of warming. We are coming to the Paris meeting now uh, and action now at the very last moment when there is hope of turning things around. We need to make sure that we make the best of this opportunity, that we argue convincingly with our governments, both state and federal, that action can no longer be de delayed. 
we must start now, otherwise we will lose the chance to act. Which is why I was so pleased to sign the open letter to support President Tong in his great action to try to make sure that we have a moratorium on all new coal mines and coal mine expansions globally. It is a huge honour for me to be introducing our special guest this evening, His Excellency Anote Tong, President of the Republic of Kiribati. President Tong, welcome to Australia. We're very lucky to have you with us uh, this evening on your way to Paris and the COP21 climate talks and to speak with us about your proposal for a new, uh, for a coal mine moratorium. For nations like Kiribati, island nations that lie just metres above sea level, climate change is a very serious issue. As President Tonga said, what we're talking about is survival. This is, coal mining is an existential threat to places like the Pacific Atoll nations. It's not about economic development, it's not about politics, it's plainly about survival. At many Council of Party meetings that we've had to deal with climate change and many other forums, President Tong has been a strong voice for climate action, in line with principles of justice and in line with the science. Actions to protect his people and those everywhere who are vulnerable to climate change. The science is absolutely clear, as I said. As my fellow climate councillor and co-signatory of President Tong's letter, Will Steffen, argued in a recent report, there's simply no space for any new coal mines anywhere on Earth. There are many things we must do, but stopping new coal mines is among the most urgent. Yet while the UK will, fund out coal this uh, will phase out coal this decade, countries like Australia want to build many new coal mines. Earlier this year, President Tong took the bold step of writing to world leaders, calling for their help in negotiating a moratorium. This proposal may seem unusual, even radical, but in fact it is totally sensible. Sir Nicholas Stern thinks so, as does Bernie Fraser. It's an immediate and effective way to bring coal emissions down, to begin to decarbonise the economy and lock in the transition to cleaner energy. Already, several other Pacific Island nations have backed the President's call, including in the historic Suva Declaration. On the eve of Paris, I hope other countries and influential voices will soon join you. I'm sorry that so far our leaders have said no, but I hope that you understand that so very many Australians stand with you. Ladies and gentlemen, from a Pacific neighbour who needs our help, and of course, who we need good fellowship from as well, this is an important proposal that will help the world. Can I introduce His Excellency, President Anote Tong? Let me begin by, first of all, uh, acknowledging and by paying my respects to the eldest passing person of this land. Where we... It is about the next generation. I have, we have, my wife and I have uh, eight children. We have 12 grandchildren and more are coming. <laughs> so I really... When I speak, I am speaking from the depth of my soul because it's not only about my grandchildren, but it's about the grandchildren of all of those that will be affected. And so this evening, I, what I will do is share the experience, tell our story from my part of the world because this is what it is all about. And it's what has been driving me over more than a decade of advocacy and uh, more than a decade of not being heard. One immediate and very possible, reasonable action is agreeing to a moratorium on coal. And I'm indeed very heartened by the growing support 
for that call. In, this, in the Pacific, I was very happy that the meeting in, the, in Suva, and it was so gratifying to get 100% of the support from all the countries that were there, because it, it means our survival. And of course, here in Australia, the support of those people who have signed, and those who have not signed, but contribute. And also around the world, there are many, many silent ones whose voices are not coming forward. So let us not think that, our, that, our, that there are only 61 permanent Australians. There is no doubt in my mind that there is a great deal more. Early this year, I went to visit the, His Holiness Pope Francis in Rome. And with the specific uh, objective of trying to get him to contribute to, this, to what I call, I've always called this moral debate, because he is a moral guide. In response, he promised that he would be writing uh, an encyclical uh, by the middle of the year, which he did in June. And of course, he came also in, uh, in to the United Nations General Assembly meeting in New York this year. And of course, he, I think he, he excited a lot of people. I was there, and we found we couldn't go anywhere while the Pope was being uh, hit, because all the streets were clogged up with people uh, seeing him. I don't want to repeat what's already been said, but uh, the reality is the science is very conclusive. And I've always been looking for the miracle. I was hoping the miracle would happen in New York. It didn't happen. I'm hoping that the miracle will happen in Paris. So let us continue to wait for that miracle. But it's very clear that coal is not something that can and must and can continue to be used. The two-degree target is indeed it's a dangerous one. You know, we, we debated, and I, for, for those of you that were not with us in Papua New Guinea when we had the Pacific Islands Forum meeting, there was a, a debate. Nobody knew what went on because nobody was there. It's only, it was only the leaders, so we never talk about it. But we did not agree. We agreed that uh, two degrees was not for us. But for some of us, it was something that they could not go beyond because it would hurt their industries. And later, of course, during the press conference, I re responded to say, of course, we, we understand. We understand that those of us whose economic growth is more important, two degrees is something that they cannot do. But those of us that cannot accept that, it's not about economic growth, it's not about politics, it is about the survival of our people. In the lead-up to COP21 in Paris, we as a collective whole should voice our concern, similar to our condemnation of any act of violence. We should condemn acts of eco-terrorism, similarly violent, but perhaps in a more progressive, gradual form, but nevertheless much, much more destructive. My colleague from Tuvalu has said, this is a weapon of mass destruction. As responsible and moral leaders, we should take heed and we should act now. And what simpler way then to agree on the moratorium on the opening of new coal mines? I know that there is some confusion here because I was passing through Sydney some maybe two weeks ago and I was just reading the, the, morning, the Sydney Morning, Sydney Herald, 
And then in the, the letters to the editor, I think, and I saw my name there, and they said they were accusing me of saying that I was calling for a, whole, uh, a stop to any export of coal. No, it is not what I said. I know what I am talking about. <laughs> because I know what happens in the colder uh, climates. I know that they cannot do without energy. And it, we cannot do, turn off the coal immediately. It is something that it would need time to transition from. So, let it be heard that all I was asking was a moratorium on the opening of new coal mines because it would reflect our sincerity in our commitment to reducing our greenhouse gas emissions. And in my view, coal was perhaps the worst offender in this respect. And so, I thought it was a very reasonable suggestion. I, I like to think that I am a reasonable person. But it seems that that is being misinterpreted, perhaps deliberately. But I am also mindful of the, the reality that the current Prime Minister, I think, I know very carefully worded statement that he's not talking about the moratorium on the opening of new coal mines. He's not rejecting that. But he's rejecting their misinterpretation of what it is that I have said. And so he's rejecting the, the suggestion that the uh, export of coal should cease immediately. So I think I take that as being very significant. The urgency and the unparalleled threat to my people, to all of those people who are on the front line of climate change, people on the coastlines, you know, what's got to be understood and appreciated is it's not simply about us. It's about people here on the coastlines of Australia. You're lucky because those of you on the coastline because you've got somewhere to move back. And I've been at meetings where I speak and, you know, these very smart people they say, Oi, why don't you move back? I say, if I move back, I'll fall on the other side. <laughs> but I think the danger that it poses, not only to, our, to my people, but all of those people who are on the front line of climate change, should never really be underestimated. The science is telling us quite categorically that there is serious trouble ahead of us. I believe it is imperative that we do not simply pay lip service to an issue that at the heart of it is the very survival and the future of people, men, women, and children, whose very cultures, whose communities, villages, cities, and nations are at stake. Is there any other important consideration than the future of our children, our grandchildren, and their children? Is that more important or less important than economic development? I pose the question. And I seek a sensible answer. It has been said that coal mining will reduce poverty levels. And I think that is the argument that many climate activists sometimes get stalled and don't know how to respond. But I tell you, does coal really address the poverty issues in the developing world? We are poor, yet coal will not address our poverty. What we have then in our part of the world is, uh, as a government, we made a commitment last year and into this year to light up all the homes, every home on the islands. And so we did that. So now every home is lit by a solar lamp 
and we have changed their lives, we have to change it. Yet we've done so without burning any coal. Our 100% renewable energy. Tonga is on the way to doing that. Many of the Pacific Island countries are on the way to uh, reducing their dependence on fossil fuel. So it is doable. And so let us not put forward the argument. I think the argument that is being put forward is simply to perpetuate the interest of those people whose profit and loss statement depends on coal. In support of relatively small and wealthy interest groups, such as the coal industry. Let me share with you. I've, I've been written a letter from the coal industry, and they wrote to me. And I don't know these guys. <laughs> but they wrote to me, and uh, they, they had uh, the cheek to say, you know, you're wasting your time. You know, you're wasting, you really are wasting your time. Don't bother to keep doing this, because coal will continue to be the source of energy in the future. And so, I was angry, of course, and I wanted to respond, but uh, my senior advisor said, don't bother, that's not worth it. <laughs> but I, I'm still not satisfied. I, okay, I'm here today as part of my ongoing advocacy against a threat, not only to my people, but to the whole of humankind, which, if not addressed, has the potential to wipe out life as we know it. And that has got to be understood. The coal, the coal moratorium, as I referred to earlier, is, uh, my expectation is it would be the first of many steps. It was my belief that it's the easiest step. And if it's not acceptable, come up with alternatives so that we are really are talking about cutting down, down our emissions. Because what we don't want to happen is a grand commitment, but no real action. Okay? And so the test will be in Paris. I know that a lot, number of INDCs have been submitted, and so we've submitted ours. But the question is, will there be any genuine effort to fulfill and to meet these INDCs? That will be the challenge beyond uh, Paris. The Pacific Islands, in the historic Suba Declaration, just earlier, this, um, a few months back, shared a position, Pacific Island nations, which are taking to Paris for the COP meeting. And we have jointly called for a new global dialogue on the implementation of an international moratorium on the development and expansion of fossil fuel extracting industries, in particular, the construction of new coal mines as an urgent step towards decarbonizing the global economy. Against this background, it is my genuine hope that this wonderful country of yours will be able to take the lead on this issue that is critical to its neighbors. Australia is a, a big brother, one that should be standing by us when bullies from the other side of the world come. Okay? We don't want to be bullied by our brothers. I think you know, we all have families, and when the bigger boy, your bigger son bullies the, the younger brother, it's not on. And so likewise, this is not on. Our mistake in the past was standing by the sideline while decisions were taken in the boardrooms in the United States, in Europe, now in Japan, and now they're being taken maybe in India, they're being taken here in Australia. We cannot afford to stand by the sideline because our future generation, generation 
would never forgive us for doing that. So let us work together in partnership to do the right thing. Let us work together in partnership to convince those that continue to need convincing that if they don't do this, they will go to hell. <laughs> go to hell indeed. We'll all go. We're all going to hell in a handcart, it feels, at the moment. But there's been a sea change. As we who attended the Friday Night People's Climate March in Melbourne know, there was a good zeitgeist in the air that night. That's the end of the show, the Beyond Zero Emissions show for tonight. Don't forget to tune in at 8.30am on a Friday for our sister show which you can also reach through podcasts on the bze.org.au site or the 3cr.org.au.